So I was a terrific snob about Paris. I mean, loving Paris is a cliche. Everybody yeah. wants to go to Paris. Why do they want to go to Paris? You know, that's how my attitude at the time. I was going to go to Venice or Morocco or, you know, not too exotic. But let but, me just say, th- those are also cliches. Well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Let's see, Oslo. I am newly in love with Oslo. <laughs> hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired, and please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so happy to welcome Ruth Yunker to the My Fourth Act podcast. Before I tell you about her, this is one of those wonderful moments. We first communicated a couple of months ago. We didn't know each other. Three weeks ago, I was visiting the South Bay area of California. Ruth lives in Long Beach. And we actually got together and had a wonderful dinner at a sushi restaurant in Redondo Beach. So I'm speaking with somebody who was a new acquaintance, and I think of her already as a friend. And I immediately adored her when we had dinner. And let me tell you why. Ruth is an author. She's a humorist. She's a yogini. She's a fashionista. She's a photographer. And that is just scratching the surface. Ruth has written two humorous travel memoirs. Me, Myself, and Paris is the first one. And Paris, I've grown accustomed to you. Both are accounts about, she uses the word surviving Paris, and we'll talk about that some more, as a single woman. In her latest book, Baby, I'm the Boss of Me, and I totally love that title, Ruth takes on the joy and humor of aging. At the age of 72, with two divorced husbands and adult children she adores, Ruth is single and free. And what the heck does that actually look like? Well, we're going to talk about that. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, how are you? I'm well. It's wonderful. I'm going to see you again because we're recording with Zoom. So even though when you're listening, you won't see Ruth. I know you moved around quite a bit as a child. You weren't born in Boston, but you grew up in the Boston area. You were in Belgium for a while. You learned French. Then you moved out of Belgium again. During those times, because parents always ask us, okay, so honey, who do you want to be when you grow up? You know, uh, they say in their own way. Did you have an answer for that? I didn't want to grow up. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I had it good. In spite of all that moving around and being a new kid, I knew I had it good. I liked being a kid. I liked my books. I liked my friends. I liked mom and dad, baby sisters in the house. So I never, I mean, I didn't consciously not want to grow up, but I didn't didn't think about it. Maybe that's why I floundered once I did grow up. Well, one thing you, you shared you shared with me, and uh, I want to say you're a very attractive woman, and you said you well, I want to be a model, and oh, you and you were told, well, you're too short to be a model. That can be a soul crushing comment when you think about something you want to do, and I'm sure lots of people said, oh, you're so pretty, Ruth, you're so pretty, and then the industry says, well, you friggin' can't be a model. What, what was that like to get that reaction? You know, I. 
Well, I didn't like it because I grew to five, five and a half. And then in one year I grew to five, six and a quarter. And I thought, hot dog, I'm on my way. <laughs> you know, I never grew another, another centimeter after that. And that's when I was 16. I went to modeling school anyway. But at the time I read the writing on the wall. I wasn't a Twiggy, I wasn't a Penelope Tree or a Jean Shrimpton. And I also didn't have the moxie to just, my mother said, well, we'll send you to New York if you, you know, you really want to, if you want to try. And I, I didn't have the moxie at that point. I think it may be from all the moving growing up, but I just also had a sense that it wasn't going to happen. Maybe it wasn't me, really. I let it go. Uh, there's so much wisdom in what you said, but I was, I was really struck by the word moxie because, you know, you and I are roughly in the same age bracket and we're definitely fourth actors. And some of us, if we're lucky, have more moxie at the stage of our lives, which means we go for it more. We fear judgment less because you did some cool things when you turned 50. And I want to get to that because 50 can be a terrifying thing for people, but I want to take us to the journey into 50 in two ways. So I want to talk about your marriages and your writing. You married twice, you got divorced twice. And I think for many of us, if a relationship doesn't feel right, we don't know how to get out of them. And I think especially for women, if, if the husband is a provider, you go, why, why would I leave the provider? And gosh, he's good to my children. How did you manage? What was your process for getting out of your marriages? Well, they were both completely different. The first mm -hmm. marriage, I, we married at 19 and 20, was basically mm -hmm. because we both wanted to get out of the dorm. And our parents <laughs> would still support us in an apartment, because this was in 68, where you didn't live with your boyfriends like you do now. Yeah. You know? And so we got married, and we, made, we were determined to make it work. But alcoholism came into the picture, particularly on his part. Mine, too. I was an avid participator. And it just after it did take us 10 years to have our two children, but it just deteriorated. I mean, he was it wasn't a, not neither. We were functioning alcoholics. Let's yeah. put it that way. But I just was overwhelmed by those two children. I was over him. It hadn't been a true like fall on our face love. I mean, we grew into love. I can see how arranged marriages could work. Yeah. We had fun because we were young and we learned everything together, you know, including sex and how to, you know, manage a checkbook, both bought a house. Well, but, I want to interject. Those are two very critical things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very important, both of them. And he continued to work. I mean, he didn't ever fall apart on that at all. But I just, I had those two babies and then I had him. And one day I just said to myself, there's three, there's three babies here and one of them's got to go. And it was him. Yeah. And luckily I had parental, my parents stepped right in and, and he did too. He paid his, he did his part, but that was just a relief to get out of that marriage. I, I never looked back. I, I was not afraid of being single. Mm -hmm. Nice. And how, how was your second marriage different? I know your husband was completely different. Yeah. How did you decide to leave that marriage? <laughs> and I want to say this way. I mean that as a really positive thing, you know, because I think so many of us stay in relationships way past the time when they serve both parties. 
you know, so I don't see leaving, ending a relationship as a bad thing at all. I want to clarify my comment. You know, that amazes me too. I don't know if it's me who's got the nerve to get out of a marriage or I'm always protected. I feel I'm very protected, you know, financially, it could be more protected, but you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. family is always there. I always had, would have some place to go, but I also had a lot of personal bravery. And I think that came from being, I keep harping back on it, but it's what made me who I am today, that moving around as a child, mm-hmm. particularly when we actually got dragged over to Europe when I was 12. So um, with the second marriage, that one, that was much more of a love I'm in a way, sorry that that kind of that I let it end. But there came a point where we had four children between us. They were all off. My mother had died. My father was alone. My husband and I were having 15 year relationship issues that Mm -hmm. could have been surmounted. But again, I just I was over it. And I'm I'm not in love with being a wife and having sort of being on the man's arm anymore. When I was younger, I thought that was really cool and it was what I wanted. But it isn't what I want now, and it isn't what I wanted by the end of my marriage. I wanted to be a single woman. Yeah. I so appreciate your clarity. You know, as I've told you, my partner and I and Brenna, not that long, but four-year relationship, and we choose to not live together. And people, there's such yeah. an expectation, even with two gay men, that at some point you're going to domesticate. And I think we both love the fact that we're not doing that. So I fully understand what you just said. Now, you are a writer, and you knew early on your writer, and we're going to get to your books. But in the middle of these marriages, how did you navigate, let's say, exploring your writing? How did you know what to write? How committed were you to your writing? Because for anybody who has writing urges, you know, that can be hard to figure out. Well, yes, I I think if I think if one has a natural draw to do something that they hopefully have a natural ability for it. So, you know, I'd always been good in English, you know, I always my compositions were really good and so on and so <laughs> forth. I didn't <laughs> So, you know, but in my 20s I didn't write at all. When I got divorced from that first husband, I needed to make some money. I mean, it was great, but I still needed, and I wanted to find myself. Even though I thought sitting at home writing might be on the tedious side, I needed to be at home because I had two children. So I started taking classes at the university, you know, going back in, I was in Baltimore, Maryland, started taking writing classes there just to hone my my ability and get some direction and some discipline for, you know, how to be a writer. And right from the start, I just got, I had wonderful teachers who thought I was great. And it just gave me the confidence. I actually started by creating a cartoon strip about single parenting. And that was fun, although it took me two years to get it published anywhere. And by the time I got there, I was fully back on to writing. So I liked humor right from the start. I liked writing conversationally, even though I did get literary short stories published and all of that, but I, it's, I honed in on it when I needed to make money working from home. That's, but I went for what am I good at? And, you know, this isn't the time to sit back and have false modesty. It's the time to figure out what it is you can do. Like I wasn't tall enough to be a model in 1966 when Jean Shrimpton at 5'10 was (laughs) the way to go. 
but writing. I don't mean to stop you, but you realize you mentioned Pen- Penelope Tree, Twiggy, and all these Muslims. You know, there's a whole generation of people who has no idea who you're talking about, right? I know, but I figure anyone listening <laughs> these are beautifully, to podcast, These are beautiful honest. 60s references, yes. <laughs> 60s were fantastic. And the high and the low, like That's they are right. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I One thing you said, I, I just want to... I love that you said that I took some writing classes in Baltimore and I just want to, for anybody who's listening to us who wants to write, you know, I've been writing since seriously, since the early nineties, I was living in New York and I studied with three, I had the privilege there to study with three really famous writers and to suddenly be in a class with an amazing teacher and surrounded by other really serious writers. It changed my relationship to writing. And there's something powerful about that. And I, I didn't know that you'd done that. And I think it's great. Now, this, this gets us to Paris because you, I want to mention the titles of your two memoirs because I, I love the titles and just the language choice, I think, reveals something about your sense of humor. So once more, first memoir about Paris was me, myself, and Paris. In that order, noted. And... <laughs> And to Paris, I've grown accustomed to your ways. So let's, uh, was the fact that you spent a year or so in Brussels and probably learned some French, did that make it easier to decide, heck, I'm going to go to Paris, I speak a little bit of the language? Was that part of it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was a terrific snob about Paris. I mean, loving Paris is a cliche. Everybody wants to go to Paris. Why do they want to go to Paris? You know, that's how my attitude at the time, I was going to go to Venice or Morocco or, you know, not too exotic. But let me just say, those are also cliches. Well, (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Let's see, Oslo. I am newly in love with Oslo. (laughs) Okay, cool. That's definitely not a cliche. Yes, right. And so, but I was going to stay there a long time, stay in my own apartment, you know, an Airbnb. And I finally, again... I'll have the mad idea and then I get practical about it. Sometimes that stops me in my tracks and sometimes it actually makes it happen. So the practical part was I speak some French or I used to, and I'm sure it'll come back and that will be helpful when I'm needing to go to the dry cleaners or the grocery store or any of the things that you do when you're not staying in a hotel and you're on your own. So that's how I, and then I thought, get over this attitude about Paris, you know, go check it out as an adult. I'd been there once at 12. I was less than impressed because it just looked like a bigger, dirtier oh, Brussels to me. Well, because you're a snob. Yeah, and I was a 12-year-old. <laughs> and at 12, I was mad about being in Europe. I was not happy about it. Okay. Now, around the same time, and connect these with me because it's the podcast is all about life changes and transitions. And I believe when you turned 50 around the time, you also chose to to become sober. Did that start before you went to Paris, after Paris? Did it precede going there? What's the connection between sobriety and doing the Paris experience? Oh, well, I got sober before I went to Paris about five or six years before that and family issues made that happen. So I'm up alcoholic or, you know, recovered now, but I mean, at the time I would not have been able to do any of this traveling on my own if I was still drinking. That's all I can say about that. Some people can, I can't. So 
by then, I was really still on a pink cloud about life in general being sober. I was thrilled not to be drinking. It was a, it was, I actually hated it, you know, I, this genetic. I, anyway, so also when I got to Paris, so <clears throat> I went to AA meetings, which mm-hmm. I do everywhere I travel to this day, which helps me meet people. In fact, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but I was saying, anyway, even if you're not an AA, go check out an AA meeting in English. Wherever you are, you'll meet people, and they're very helpful. Yeah. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Repeatedly said, you realized, I like being single. And you went to Paris as a single woman. And you're an attractive woman. So my stereotype is, Yeah, she speaks French, but people are going to hit on her all the time. Either she wants that or she's going there to have a really wild time and let loose, even though she's not drinking. Like, just describe, like, how did you fill your days in Paris, Ruth? Well, I did get hit on a lot. French men love women. Doesn't matter what age you are. (laughs) And, you know... I mean, I had my adventures, and mm-hmm. but I wasn't crazy. You know, I wasn't looking. I mean, I had love back waiting for me in California when I came home. So mm-hmm. there was a certain, you know, my life consisted of the trips changed over 16 years. The first trips, I was there really to see the city and to meet people. I always enjoyed meeting people both at AA and on social media has been just another magnificent way to meet people. But I would sightsee. And part of that was just the thrill of getting myself there and learning how to do my money, you know, my in French and all of it, the daily life in a foreign country. I'd had experience living in Brussels as a teenager. So I wasn't totally flummoxed. You know, I got myself on the metros But gradually, I met people and met people and came back, stayed in different apartments until the last three trips, I've stayed in the same one in the 15th (laughs) arrondissement. Paris became not this icon, not this cliche, but an actual living, breathing place that I really do love to this day. I love it now. So I'm wondering, and I'm somebody who grew up in foreign country. I'm German, grew up in Portugal, Turkey. I'm a German citizen. This is a foreign country. And when we travel like you do, there's a, there can be a sense of displacement and we learn new things about ourselves by being out of our environment. What are some things you discovered about Ruth and who you are as you were navigating around Paris? Well, I am much more brave than I thought I was. I didn't think I was a scaredy cat, but... I think in retrospect, it's brave that I went off and did all these trips, especially thinking of all the actually specifically the hard part of travel, as you and I have talked about over sushi in Redondo Beach, (laughs) getting there, the airplanes, the trains, the getting there on time, the elevators that break when you're in them, things like that. 
I have getting to this massive airport and finding out your flight back home has been canceled. Also, yoga helps me through all of this. Mm -hmm. Yoga is my mainstay. I have found I go into what's called my Zen place mm-hmm. because I'm I'm normally a volatile person. I'm not one to throw a fit and crack up in public. And I that's part of what I like about being alone. It's taught me to do that. Yeah. You know, there's no one you can throw yourself at and have them carry, have him carry you up the stairs. You know, you climb those stairs yourself and get those suitcases up there. Yeah. Unless there's helpful people around. <laughs> there always <laughs> are. You know, I have a feeling you know how to attract the helpful people, Ruth. Yeah, well, I, because <laughs> I have to. After I throwing my suitcase down one flight of stairs at the uh, train station in Venice, and this young kid at the bottom going, "No, Madame, you know, I'll do it." You know, I have learned don't react. That you just ask, but it's brought out. It's given me an overall sense of peace about this part of my age. I'm in the last 30 years of my age of my life, most until, and I think that's about as long as I need for this one. Then we can move on to whatever comes next, you know. But it's given me the realization and the ability to view it with excitement as opposed to depression or this is the end or my best years are over. My best years weren't back then. My best years really started once I started like going to your, or just getting rid of the shackles of society, you know, yeah. one day I might, well, I would love to have a partner again, but I don't want to go back to that place where it's a husband and I got a house and he's wearing me on his friggin' arm. <laughs> I'm not going to be worn on anybody's arm, you know, anymore. And the going to Europe really yeah. forced me into that. And I was proud of how I did it. That's why I kept going back. Yeah. Right now, during the pandemic, it's been nice to kind of stop, mm-hmm. spend a lot of more time with family at various places around the country where they are, and kind of taking it in yeah. these last, those last 15, 16 years of solid travel. That's when I wrote this book, Aging, I'm the Boss of Me. Baby Wait a minute. I think you got your title wrong. It's Baby. I'm Baby, yes. <laughs> yeah, let me remind Baby, you, Ruth you Linker, we need to get you some pills for remembering your book title. <laughs> I said it wrong the other day, too. I didn't say aging, though. But so, the, the book is, we really connected through the book, which came out just the, in the last year. So it's a new book. It's called Baby, I'm the Boss of Me. You're very open about your age. You're 72 years old. You just said this is in some ways, the best part of your life. What are the opportunities maybe that you see for yourself right now that maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago either weren't there or you were afraid to pursue them? (laughs) Well, it's all your fault, but I'm going to pursue modeling at this age. I said to myself the other day, Akeem said, your height doesn't make any difference at your age now. Your age, there's all kinds of modeling out there. Have at it, especially, you know, so. May I interject since I'm being quoted by you? And that I love the conversation we had over dinner because you are a strikingly attractive woman. You're wonderfully energetic. So when you say that yoga, it makes sense. You emanate radiant energy. And, and you sat there, you know, in, in a very straight-faced way as we were having sushi saying, well, I'm, I'm just not tall enough to be a model. I went, 
wait a minute, that may have been true in your 20s when you had to be a runway model, but this is a different stage in your life. There are different modeling opportunities. I called you out a little bit, and I'm so delighted that you've been following up on that. (laughs) Well, you did. Well, and you know, I'm both good and bad. I hear advice. I don't necessarily follow it. I don't do it with a kind of don't tell me, you know, thing. I just more like if it feels, well, that, you know, that rang a bell. I mean, I've been hearing it a lot from people, you know, with my social media stuff and all that. But you're somebody I respect in terms of the business world. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you said was go get headshots, which I'm getting March 21st. And, uh, and I'm going to be, I'm just, I said, someone said, oh, well, that sounds, and I'm not necessarily telling a lot of people and I'm continuing writing my next book, but it just, it gelled. It was like, all of a sudden I got to meet, can we get to the, what did you want to tell your 16 year old self? And not yet. I was such right. Well, this part goes back to that. I am all of a sudden the other day I said to myself, well, this gives you a chance to go back and revisit who you were at 16. Yeah. What I love about that comment you made is sometimes it's not the right time for something and yeah. whatever is the right time. What I hear you talk about your life experiences and your, what I'm hearing is your willingness to be a courageous single woman that doesn't mean you don't want to have a partner, but not being afraid of that. You know, you you show up as a different person now, you know, maybe less fearful, you know, and that might open doors that couldn't open when you were in your 20s, you know. I didn't quite hear what you said. <laughs> it's okay, because I it's something I tell my clients never do. I like went on for too long. It's okay. <laughs> but other than modeling, which you're pursuing again, which I think is fantastic. Are there any other things where you go, these are things I still would like to do that I haven't done or things I would like to do more of, or sometimes we go, these are things I want to do less of because I'm no longer interested in them. Well, I don't have anything specific like, gee, I want to take up roller skating, which I tried last year and fell in my <laughs> not happening. I've never really held back from that. There mm. are countries I'd like to visit and things like that. But I've never really allowed myself to fall in love. And I think 72 would be a great time to consider that. That's so much too. So what do you think it takes for you and you, meaning anybody, to allow themselves to fall in love? You use the verb allow, which is powerful. What what does that take? I, for me, that says (laughs) to allow myself to be vulnerable to them and not in a stupid way, but I mean, in my heart, really open up so much that I would be devastated if I lost them, if it had gotten to the point that we're actually, you know, because both of my marriages, in fact, all of my relationships have been wonderful and fun and but I've always been one step, not out the door. A friend of mine once said, you have a glass shield around you and again maybe that was from being the new kid all those times I mean we are so affected by what goes on in our childhood and that never goes away it doesn't have to drag us down and in fact it can be empowering in fact I think at this age anything you find that can make you more feel more powerful you should go for and that includes having a look at your childhood traumas whether they're good trauma or bad trauma So you made a comment earlier and I rudely stopped you 
But this is a question I like to ask folks, which is based on what you know now, if you had a chance to whisper some guidance to the, the ears of younger teenage Ruth, not to change the course of your life because the course isn't perfect just the way it is, but what would you want to say to her from your current vantage point? Okay, what I'd want to say to her is, I would say, just remember this, girls are too good at math. And here's <laughs> why. <laughs> here's why. In my day, girls were not good at math. Boys were good at math. Girls were good at English. So in other words, girls were good at creative, artistic, feelings, emotions. Boys, what with this math, they always, there was a way to the answer. There was a map there was a right answer. There was no room for disseminating. You know, you went right to the cut to the chase. How do I fix this problem? How do I find the answer? That is something that that even now to this day, and when I'm traveling, I will think uh, we so often women can get into the emotional side of it, which is a wonderful, warm, loving side. And that men can kind of just immediately give you good advice, you know? And the thing is, is that that immediately going for the, what is the answer? You know, here is this problem. What's plan B? What's plan C? I really learned how to do that when I was traveling. You Mm -hmm. know, there had to be an answer. You know, it was just, what's the answer? The trains are all not going into Paris today. How do you get to the airport? with three bags and eight trillion other people in the same boat, I couldn't fall apart or hang on to whoever, you know, I just had to, that was another time I threw the bags all the way down the stairs. But anyway, I would tell myself, there is always an answer. There's always the right direction to go for where you want to get. There's always step one. And at 16, I didn't know that everything was uh, up in the clouds how to get from here to there. So as a result, I didn't make solid plans at that age. I just kind of let life happen. Now I have solid plans. Beautiful. That's such a, it's a wonderful insight to end the conversation on. I, but I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know who might go, wow, her books sound cool. And uh, I like what Ruth talks about and, where will people find out more about you, either your books or do you have a website? Where do you want to send them? Oh, well, I have my books. They're on Amazon. There's the three of them. And there's a fourth one on the way. Um, but also, so Amazon, of course, for the books. But to know more about me, I think my Instagram account says the most because mm-hmm. one of my things now is it started during the pandemic was when we were all stuck at home and everyone's having claustrophobia and all the rest of it is look for the miracles in your daily life. And I mean, the little tiny ones like the light turning green at the last minute, how good that first cup of coffee takes and really honor, honor everything about your daily life, especially the smallest stuff. And secondly, smile at your face in the mirror. It gives your brain, <laughs> you crack that face open into a smile first thing in the morning and your brain says, oh, I, I guess I'm in a good mood. And you're saying, yeah, you're in a good mood, especially as you get older. What I also appreciate because you, you're, you're very visual and you experiment with looks. In my mind as a coach, to me, you almost you experiment with personas or different aspects of yourself and represent them visually. And I think folks could find some of that on your Instagram page as well. What's your Instagram handle, Ruth? It's ruth.yunker, 
there's the dot at the end because people were calling me Ruthie Unker. <laughs> so that name, I swear. And the thing is, is there are posts underneath and a lot of mine, a lot, some are real short, but some are this daily meditation of, you know, here's this funny little thing that happened to me. It, I talk much more about myself on my Instagram account than I do on Facebook. Facebook's just sort of, I've been on it so long. I, you know, I feel if you don't know me yet, then never mind. Go over to Ruth Younger if you want. Wonderful. But, and I also have a YouTube channel. It's currently dormant, but it will, it stopped during the pandemic, but it will begin livening up probably in about maybe next September. Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I just so enjoyed it, Ruth. Thanks Thank so much. You. Thank you. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.